Welcome to episode 83 of The Real Photo Show. My guest today is Kayla Coleman. Kayla is the Collector Relations Liaison at the Carrie Abel Gallery in Brooklyn, and we have a fantastic conversation. But before I get to that, a couple of days ago, a Yemeni photojournalist reached out to me on Facebook. Uh, He has a GoFundMe. Uh, Apparently, his wife was killed in an airstrike, and he has a five-year-old daughter, and he's trying to get out of Yemen. So I started to look into organizations that help people get out of Yemen, and I I sent him some information about that. But he said he tried those, and because there is a a little bit of a translation issue, I wasn't 100% clear on why those things didn't work out. Uh, But there is a GoFundMe, and if you search GoFundMe uh, for Yemeni journalist seeks safety abroad, uh, you'll find it. It's sponsored by an Italian photojournalist, I believe, Federico Annabale. The Yemeni photographer's name is Mohammed Abd al-Rasak, uh, but he goes by a different name on Facebook. And so it's difficult because I can't be 100% certain of all of the details of this situation. And so I do share this with some apprehension. But I told him I would share this uh, before the next show. Uh, so I think the GoFundMe ends in a few days. So check it out and um, you know decide for yourself. As you probably know, the situation in Yemen is a a terrible mess. Uh, There's a lot of starvation and a refugee crisis happening there. And of course, it's one of those complicated civil wars that's also a proxy war for other nations, including the United States, which is supplying arms to Saudi Arabia. And so, yeah, I, I told him I'd put it out there. And I don't really have a good way of transitioning back to the show, but here it goes. I'm going to read you from the Carrie Abel Gallery website. Uh, Carrie Abel Gallery welcomes Kayla Coleman as its newest collector relations liaison. And if you don't know what that is, uh, we will talk about that at the beginning of the show. She is an art historian, educator, and writer based in New York City and specializes in modern and contemporary art by black artists in the United States and the Caribbean. Kayla received an Associates of Science degree in Gallery and Museum Studies and Photography from Queensborough Community College, a Bachelor of Arts degree in Art History from Brooklyn College, and is currently writing her thesis for a Master of Arts degree in Art History from the City College of New York. And I do ask Kayla about that thesis. She didn't want to give too much away because she's in the middle of writing it, but it sounded pretty interesting, and she does uh, give us some clues and hints as to what it's going to be about. So Kayla and I are going to talk about her experiences that led her from a Virginia boarding school to studying pre-med and then finally to pursuing art history and her master's degree. Uh, We talk about our experience as a person of color in a mostly white art history program, and we talk a lot about creating a gallery and a program space that is welcoming and involved with the community at the Carrie Abel Gallery in Brooklyn. So if you don't know Carrie Abel Gallery, you can check them out online at carrieablegallery.com, and that's with a C. And I'd like to thank Carrie Abel for letting me record Kayla there. All right, everyone, enjoy the show. Thanks for listening, and we will talk soon. start working at Carrie Abel Gallery, which is where we are recording. I started working here in officially in September, but I started in July. My first okay. program was in September, though. And what is what is a uh, acquisitions liaison? Well, what I do, the collector relations liaison is Oh, that's that. it. I'm sorry. Collector no. relations liaison. Yes. Um, so I pretty much help 
people enter the art market. I help them figure out, just because we get so many people who like art, but don't really have a frame of reference for it, have never really experienced it. And so I try to create access. And one of the ways I create access is through programming. And you came to one of the artist talks that I did. I did. It was, uh, yeah, that was for uh, Yoav Friedlander. And yeah, so in which in creating this access, what happens is that we get so many people who are interested in and knowing more about this artistic process and the creative mind and just how they can have these works for themselves. And so you're dealing with clients in mm-hmm. a way. Oh, okay. I'm dealing with clients. I'm dealing with future clients. I'm also dealing with just people who have a love for art and like to experience it. And sometimes, you know, what we discover, like me working in the industry as long as I have, is that the art world can be very off-putting to the average person yeah. who doesn't know anything about art. And it's funny to me because so much of our lives are influenced by art, and art is a communicative process in general. And so because it is, it's crazy to me why these institutions and these galleries, just these people, these organizations that are considered gatekeepers of culture are so interested in pushing people away. There's an, an intimidation factor in a lot of galleries mm-hmm. where you, you know, you're afraid to ask and look stupid and not, you know, not, not be in the know, right? right? When you walk into a gallery. Exactly. And like you walk around Chelsea and like even me and I was working in the Lower East Side and stuff and I'm in this community and I would notice you walk into these galleries and people would look at you and size you up <laughs> and would be like, oh, she's not buying anything. That's it. So what? That's like- <laughs> it. Yeah, I always felt that. I was like, yeah, he's, you know, there I was in my whatever I was wearing, which I'm sure, uh, you know, uh, was whatever was off the rack. Yeah, he's not buying art. <laughs> which is like ridiculous because just because that person isn't buying art today, doesn't mean they won't eventually enter the market. Mm -hmm. And people remember how they're treated. So I, for one, am not going to give someone my business if they treated me in a way that made me feel like I wasn't welcome. Mm -hmm. So when people come to the gallery and I'm here, you come to one of the events and stuff, what I try to do is foster a relationship. It's not just about whether you buy something or not. I want you to come back and learn something. I want you to come back and participate in the programming because the programming is for everyone because art is for everyone. Yeah. And I I think that was also the sort of the nature of the business was that um, the gallery looked like it was open for everyone to the public, but really all the deals were being done by collectors and critics and everyone else. Right. 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 (laughs) And it's literally how it goes. Mm -hmm. And you think about how far reaching that is and that, let's say, a write up by Roberta Smith or Holland Cotter can send an artist into like the stratosphere and next thing you know they're the next big thing but what about the person who doesn't know anything about that or can't afford auction house prices and but they love art and they love that creative experience and they want to experience it for themselves yeah was it your work at white box that is that how carrie abel found you here Actually, I was working at White Box when I applied for um, the position and I found a position on NYFA and it was just kind oh, of like, okay. I'm always like looking for my next thing. And I was like, oh, this is something 
that sounds like me, <laughs> like sounds like me, because a lot of like all of my jobs have kind of always been like once people get to know me and they get to know like my personality, there's always a push to put me in front of people. And so I was like, okay, well, this is something I could do, especially when the I learned about the, the programming, the Emerging Collectors Council, and that's my baby, and I love doing that. I really love it. You learned so. that about that programming through through Carrie Abel. Oh, yeah, like, oh, like okay. it's it's right. definitely a Carrie Abel program. They mm-hmm. they came up with it, and it really fosters that relationship with the community. And because so much of what like we're a commercial gallery, but we're also mission based, and like the chalkboard on the door, and just like you know the arts classes for children on the weekends, and just being a part of the community and also mm. contributing to the community. And so many people who come to these events live right around here. Oh, okay. So it's yeah. it, to me, I think it's awesome. Like, right. I meet people all the time, like, just walking to the bodega, like, and yeah. they're like, oh, that's right. an art gallery. And the next thing you know, <laughs> we're having a conversation. I'm right. showing them around. And, you yeah, know. Yeah, that's, I, I think that's that's right. And, and, you know, I'm not even sure or that it even matters that when Yoav was here speaking that, Joel Sternfeld was hanging out in the back and probably half the people didn't know who he was. Right, <laughs> right, right. And it's like, and that's the thing. Like, I'm you sure know, he likes that too. I think he does. <laughs> yeah. I actually think he does because it's like, it's so, first off, it's great to be a regular person and experience things the way everyone else experiences things. Mm-hmm. And also, like I said, artists for everyone. And that access goes for everyone. You shouldn't have to buy access. Well, and so uh, that is... Kind of the premise of white space, isn't it? White box, yeah. Oh, white box, is white that, box, yeah. Um, and I haven't, I'm no longer work there, but oh, while okay. I was working there, right. they did a lot of work with international underrepresented artists who had never shown in New York City before. Mm. And it was a great platform because, you know, by being a small nonprofit, a very small nonprofit, they weren't regulated to those roles that, you know, a museum is, and that, you know, when you get such big funding sometimes you and especially if it's big government funding you are some you're sometimes forced to be a little more conservative in the things that you show sure but white box because it was such a small outfit they took chances and i thought that was that was excellent and actually yeah. before i had even applied to that job i had went to a show that they did make there was a called make america great again and they wound <laughs> up actually getting hacked and wow. vandalized because of that show. And I didn't learn about that later until once I was employed. But I was like, oh, I made a good choice like, That's you know, right. for institutional work. <laughs> you got a reaction. Right. <laughs> oh, wow. Did, did, uh, was it investigated or looked like? I mean, yeah, you know, and the thing is, is when you do work that challenges like the status quo, you have to be prepared for a certain amount of blowback. And I think, you know, that's what insurance policies are for. Like, I yeah. feel like anybody who has pushed the envelope in any kind of way expects people to react in a way that can sometimes be violent. Mm-hmm. But also, we know that change doesn't happen in a vacuum. And if you feel a way, and that's one of the best things about art, exactly, is that art is a voice. And art is a good indicator of our times, at all times. So it's like, even like, you know, when you think about abstraction, the message is hidden. But imagine being so overwhelmed with the political climate that you literally can't put anything into your art. Abstraction in some ways is... The most political, you know, because it's 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 a turning away and 
uh, a rejection of everything, <laughs> right? It is. And you think about the time in which abstraction was born and mm -hmm. just that shift from the art world, the center of the art world being in Europe to coming to New York. What drove that? It was the war. Right. And, um, and then we talk about post-war art, but like that laying of that foundation meant something because a lot of those artists who came to America, like Bauhaus artists and that sort of thing. Like I went to a school that was founded on Bauhaus principles. Most schools, art schools that are like notable are founded on Bauhaus principles. That's straight from Europe. That's right. straight. Like those are war refugees, like yeah. people who came here and to escape Nazism and fascism and oppression. Mm -hmm. and, so. and then, and then it was, um, uh, sort of morphed and tempered and changed into the sort of the practicality of the American culture, right? Mm -hmm. They couldn't, they could never fully embrace that sort of a, a, that a, a European sort of avant-garde idea, right? Yeah, and I think it's because like, you know, Americana is so synonymous with capitalism mm -hmm. in a way that can be wholly, wholly like just abject to any practice. And I, find, I see that, you know, in artists all the time who don't really know how to walk that line. Be, and a lot of artists don't know how to walk that line between commercialization and a true art practice. Yeah, no, it was, uh, it was so taboo to be an artist and do commercial work mm -hmm. here, where in Europe it, it was fully accepted. Right, right, right. And it's like, because like, you know, if you do, you're a commercialized artist in America and you're doing that kind of work and you also want to contribute to a pr your practice that like, you know, that's, I guess, true art, <laughs> all the quotations, right? <laughs> <laughs> like it, you lose your edge in a way. People look at you like a poser, like look right. at what happened to Warhol. Mm -hmm. Like people didn't take him seriously for a long time because he had that experience in advertising that's a lot of artists who like, cause you know, people have to eat, right. <laughs> you know, like oh, yeah. I would never like look at an artist who uses their practice for gain, like, you know, like to feed themselves and think, Oh, that's the wrong thing to do because you have to eat. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's right. bills to be paid and you know, your livelihood matters. Uh -huh. And <laughs> Well, let, let's back up a little bit. How did you get involved in all this? where did you grow up? Well, I grew up between New York and, and Virginia, because I went to school in Virginia, but also my father's an immigrant from Jamaica. Okay. So I went back and forth with my childhood. And you went to public school in Virginia or college? When, when I you... went to private school in Virginia. Oh, private school. Boarding okay. school because oh, okay. I am a child of immigrants. Right. <laughs> that's what you do in Jamaica. You send your kids to boarding school. So I wound up going to boarding school in Virginia. It was boring and empty and boring <laughs> were you on your own there um yeah I mean it was boarding yeah. school so it was like you know mm -hmm. we dormed and that sort of thing right. and I have family in Virginia though like my grandmother lived in Virginia so oh okay. that was the, the thing right. that drove me there because like right. my grandmother like, lived like there. they didn't yeah. just like pick it on a map yeah. and send you away <laughs> <laughs> no that's not what happened <laughs> um but yeah and so in me like first one thing about me living in Virginia was that I was lonely and I was lonely, like, for my culture. Like, I missed, like, the little things, like West Indian food. Like, I missed, like, getting jerk chicken or going for doubles. And just, like, I missed the music. I missed, right. you know, like, they were just things. And it was funny because, like, I'm, like, I'm definitely a New Yorker. Like, born and raised in Harlem, 139th and Lenox. And I come from a long line of Harlem people. Like, my mother's side, a lot of them lived in Harlem. Like, 
they immigrated and stayed and like I see family all the time, which is why I don't live in Harlem. <laughs> but um, I say all of that to, to say that like, you know, me in, going into art, I was pre-med. I remember when I was first in college, I was a psych major and I double minored in chemistry and biology because also like when I was in high school, I was a chem nerd. I got a perfect score on the AP chemistry test, like right out the gate. I was like in the 10th grade. It was kind of crazy. <laughs> By the way, you, so you do what I do, what a lot of people I've met do, when we, we switch from a respectable degree to an art degree, we kind of say, it's not because I was bad at it or I failed or I'm dumb, right? It, right, and it's funny because, you know, it's like... I do the same thing. My family is so, like, rigid sometimes that right. they're like, how is this going to be a way that you can take care of yourself in right. the future? And I'm like, now it's kind of funny because, like, you know... They're just starting to see me as like a real person who's like (laughs) doing things in her field. And it's hilarious to me. But it's like, you know, I was taking the gen ed class, you know, like sitting. I'm over and daunted with like all of these science classes and which I look back at it and I'm like, what was I thinking? Because I cannot count. (laughs) I can do chemistry. Like I can do those formulas, but... And also I'm like teaching algebra and I'm like, why do they keep asking me to teach algebra for like SAT prep? I was like, I can't count. Like I was bored for the arts. Taking that gen ed class. And it was funny because at the time I was in the stats of psychology class. So I was taking statistics, hence the can't count. And I was dying in that class. I was like, oh, this is horrible. Like this is something that I hate. Like I'm really hating it and I'm like trying really hard because like you grow up in a West Indian household, you're either a doctor or a lawyer, there's, there's nothing else. And so I was like, all right, well, I'm gonna be a doctor. And I did have the, like I had the, the drive, but it wasn't what I really wanted to do. And so I would find myself reading my art history textbook. And this was just a survey art history of the world class. But I would be reading that textbook when I should have been doing my stats homework. Wow. And I wound up getting like a D in stats, but I got an A in art history. And I remember talking to my grandmother about that. And I was like, what do I do if I fail stats? And she's like, you take it again. And I was like, oh my God, I can't take it again. (laughs) I took it again and I got a C, but at that point I had already changed my major. I was like, I'm done. Like, you know, like I know what I want to do. This is still in Virginia? Mm -hmm. And so like this was 2008, I'm telling my age, (laughs) but this was 2008 (laughs) in Virginia. And like once I realized that I was going to study art, I like, and it was funny. I remember waking up, it was... February and I just turned 20 and so I woke up and I was like yeah Kayla you're gonna switch your major you're gonna study art and I go and I change my major to museum studies because they did not have an art program they didn't have an art history major they only had an art history minor I was like okay so I would make my major museum studies and minor in art history and then like you know it wasn't enough I was still dissatisfied I was taking classes at another school like art classes and I'm just like it's not enough And then I was like, okay, Kayla, like, go back home. Like, you literally are from the art center of the world. Go back home. And so that's what happened. I went back home. Oh, that's how you ended up at Queensboro. Um, Yeah. Like, so I came back. I'm literally, I told you it was February. I changed my major. Then I realized I wanted to move back home. I 
decided I wanted to move back home in April and I was back home for good by August. Like, so like it was kind of, it all happened really fast. So the, the boarding school was more of a college prep kind of yeah, school? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. like, yeah, yeah. I, it was super exclusive, but like right. I went, yeah, because I always, like college was always in the cards for me. Right. Like I always knew I was going to go to college. I just didn't know that I would not be a doctor. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> like I had planned it out. I was like, okay, you know, because you're from New York. So you go to college, you go to high school in Virginia, you uh-huh. establish that, you know, Virginia um, residency, then you can go to UVA for medical school. Like I had <laughs> planned it out, but like it wasn't for me. <laughs> and so I remember sitting in that art, that, that art history class and loving it, but flipping through the textbook and not seeing myself in it. Oh, yeah. And so yeah. I was like, do black people not make art? And I know they make art because I grew up in New York. Like, you know, so like I know they do. So I'm like, well, where are my people? Where are the people who look like me? Like, you know, like I can turn that would be in the uh, other cultural art history classes, (laughs) which incidentally are always electives, right? Never required. required, So, right. And, And that's something that's also driven my practice is like my interest in marginalized people and oppression and post-colonialism like that's such a huge part of like my art historical practice because I am interested in these communities and these identities that people don't see as valid because I that's literally my identity you know like I'm a child of immigrants I am a black woman in America I'm queer you know it's like who knows like you know Mm -hmm. I run that that spectrum. So it's like I understand what it's like to not see yourself represented and I'm just like okay that's an issue. Uh, that's a greater issue of access. Mm-hmm. You know, that's like when we're talking about who has access to these programs, who knows that these these venues exist for them to express themselves. Did you uh, have a chance to read that New York Times article on Denise Morell, uh, the show up at Wallach Gallery no, at Columbia? Uh, it is all about that. It's all about the lack of uh, mostly black representation in art history departments mm-hmm. and the lack of interest. Mm-hmm. Uh, they talk a lot about uh, uh, lore in Manet's work, the servant woman next yes. to Olympia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, Never mind the fact that people don't realize that Olympia was also a person of color. No, wait, That's I didn't know that. That's something that I've been told. I don't know how true that is, I wonder. but it's something that I've been told. I don't know. But yeah, yeah you see that. And I remember right. sitting in a class and I had a professor say to me, like, oh, I thought that you would write on the maid. And I'm like, why? Why would you think that I would write on the maid? Like, am I supposed to identify with the maid? Is it because we're both black? Is it because we're both black women? Is it because we're black women and black women have been known to work service jobs? Like, you know, like, well, let's th- let's unpack that. <laughs> well, this was this was on, on the other side of this was uh, Morell wanting to r- write about lore mm-hmm. and everyone in the department saying no, or most people in the department pushing back saying, why? That's not, it's not important. I remember having that happen to me when I first started talking about my thesis, which I still have not written, but I am working on. Uh And having someone tell me, because I wanted to focus on a black modern artist, that they didn't feel like there was anyone in the program who could help me. And I was like, okay, but why? Mm -hmm. Because it's modern art. So do you feel like you you can't call yourself an expert in modern art and not be prepared to talk about modern art, regardless of what the race of the artist is? But I think it's because, you know, 
art history is such an interdisciplinary practice and such an interdisciplinary, you know, like discourse that, you know, identity politics weighs very heavily in what we do, whether we want it to or not. Mm -hmm. And the influence of the biography. And so when we talk about what that means and how that will make an impact, some people don't feel qualified to talk about things. But I'm, I feel like if it makes you uncomfortable, you need to unpack that. You right. need to talk about it. You need to have those conversations, whether you feel qualified to discuss it or not. And if you don't feel qualified, that's when you need to listen. Yeah. So everybody sort of falls into... Um the slippery slope trap. Like, well, if we start talking about that, we're going to have to talk about this. And if we start talking about this, we're going to have to, and then no one will be able to do anything about anything. You don't have, it doesn't have to end up in, in anarchy or in totalitarianism. Right, right? There are right. places in between the two. And that's the thing. Like, you know, there's room for everyone. Right. Hence the, like, you know, the, you know, my emphasis of, access like Mm -hmm. there is room for everyone and like having these conversations is a big part of creating that act yeah so uh, you went to queensborough you got an associates in uh, science in gallery and museum studies so gallery museum studies was basically just working and learning about galleries and museums and just institutional practices as a whole and so i got my associates in gallery museum studies and photography And I transitioned that into a bachelor's in art history with a focus on well, minor in women and gender studies. What made you choose uh, photography then as the sort of the practicing art, visual art major? Well, um... It's common, by the way, it's when you're very doing common. when you're doing museum studies, curatorial studies, yeah, to pick yeah. photography. I uh, I'm wondering if it's because the the level of sort of involvement that you in the practice is a little easier <laughs> absolutely yeah, absolutely I'm, i mean i'm a photographer i i, I, believe I am it is. no artist yeah. like i've yeah. i've dabbled in things because you know at you know when you study art history mm-hmm. they want you to have practical knowledge as well yeah. but i've never considered myself an artist i used to paint watercolors my brother is an artist actually and he's oh. a painter and he's actually really here in new york he lives in um orlando But like, yeah, so like I've dabbled in different things, but one of the things I loved about photography is that the tools are what they are. Yes. And that your vision is what it is. Yeah. And so like, no, I mean, like you can get all kinds of critiques and ways to improve your practice, but what you see is what you get, you know? And I like that. I like that there is that level of access, you know, that I can go out and take a picture of what I see and it means something to me, but it also can mean something to someone else. Right. No, there's no, there's no, uh, hidden, uh, secret that, you know, the, the learning the camera is not tough. It's not, <laughs> right. it, it's not. And it's, it's fun. I feel right. like in a way, and that's something that I tell my students is that, yeah. you know, you, and I think it's so like just the way in which the world has worked and just the way in which, you know, photography has developed from from wet plates to dry plates mm-hmm. to to the instant to, you know, yeah. digital in that it has been such a focus on the everyday person and just like people being able to document their lives. And I feel like, you know, sometimes when I talk to my students, they take that for granted. <laughs> and I'm like, you shouldn't. <laughs> you should not take that for granted because that is something that it took the technology took a while a long time to get there and when then we wound up having conversations about how photography came to be and it always freaks them out when I tell them that 
the first camera was not to capture an image, but to project an image. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I love telling my students that the camera predates photography. It does. It does. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. like just even the act of photography in itself is such a gift. And, and it's like, you know, we and that's another thing that like we have conversations about when we talk about the role of photography in the whole artistic practice, painting, sculpture, you know. And then they're always like, uh, and I'll have a friend and they'll be like, oh, I'm photography. I'm like, yeah. hold up. <laughs> I'm like, that's crazy. Right. <laughs> because photography Can- operates in a way that painting and sculpture doesn't. Yeah. You know, in that it can be both fine art and a document. Yeah, in the meantime, can I hold up my phone and record you while you're talking? Okay, uh, yeah, yeah. Sure. So your students would <laughs> right, right. <laughs> right. not even realizing right. that's an act of photography. That's an act of photography. Right, right, and right. I'm like, every time I write something on the board and you snap a picture of it, right. <laughs> that's what you're doing. Like, yeah. you know, every time you're like, oh, I need to put this on Instagram. But, I'm like, really? But, but that's always been the curse and blessing of photography. It's always been it, as, as soon as there was a small camera, it was ubiquitous. Mm-hmm. And, but I mean, as soon as. I mean, two years after photography was invented, it was halfway around the world. Right. right. I, but I love that. <laughs> yeah. I love that. And yeah. I feel like, you know, that's something that we're constantly talking about. And I remember, what was it like? And I'm digging deep in the archives, I feel, of my, my education for this. <laughs> but what is that one image when they raised the flag at Iwo Jima? That's it. The, yeah, raising the flag yeah. at Iwo Jima. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just the fact that that image in itself brought the war home. Because, mm-hmm. you know, people don't really understand what goes on in war. I'm not saying I've ever, like, been, like, you know, on the front lines. Right. But it was like, oh, okay, this is really happening. This is real. That's it, also such a, it's such a great example of many things, and in, in particular the contextualization of imagery, because mm-hmm. they actually had to do it twice. Twice! The, the first flag was too small. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it really embodies a lot of what photography <laughs> is and thought to be, yes. The multiplicities. Yes. <laughs> How many shots have we taken that just don't right. work? <laughs> so, oh, so then after that, you said uh, you went then after Queensboro to Brooklyn, Brooklyn College, College yes. and then you got a, a full uh, bachelor's degree in art history uh-huh. and a minor with a minor in women and gender studies. Oh, okay. And then I went on to get my master's, and I finished all my coursework. Wait, I, your, is your master's done? No. Oh, okay. I mean, all of my coursework is finished. I was going to say, you have to update your, your bio. I just have to write my thesis. Oh, and okay. like, it's funny because like, like, I have nightmares about my thesis. What is your thesis? <laughs> I don't want to give it away. Oh, okay. But I will say that I'm going to write on the artist, Benny Andrews. The, oh, okay. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Benny Andrews has an art. He has an archive here. And his papers are at Emory. And like I told you, I've been working on it. So it's yep. like, you know, like I'm, I'm ready to explore it. And I'm ready to go in on that. I just like, it's kind of been, also I wanted a break from school. Mm-hmm. Like, because it can be so exhausting and like kind of turn your brain into mush. Yeah. And I really wanted to work in my field. Right. And I feel really lucky because I have been able to work in my field the way I have. So... It's been going well. So without without giving too much away, are, are you connecting the artist to something more contemporary or um, re-examining something? We're going to talk Afro-surrealism. Oh. Mm-hmm. So like through a particular series of his work. And I don't know if you've ever seen the works of Benny Andrews. He recently had a show maybe two years ago mm. at Michael Feldman. And he's been he's been gone for a while, but... 
it's so crazy how those works that he was doing in the 1970s are still so, so important and so poignant and still so relatable. And like he's talking in it, which also to me, I feel like we're discussing an experience that kind of hasn't changed in this country. And he's talking about this black experience and being like jailed and being imprisoned and just like, you know, what happens in the toll of racism and politics and that kind of impact it has on black daily life. And I'm Mm. just like, oh, we're in 2018 and we're still dealing with a lot of those issues. So Mm -hmm. it's still very relevant and is worth discussing. Yeah. I was looking at your um, Instagram account, which it looks fairly recent, right? Instagram, <laughs> <laughs> at least this right. account. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I have a reason for that because uh-huh. this is like I was on Instagram back in the day, you know, and yeah. it was just jokes to me. Right. So it was kind of just like, ah, eh, you know, whatever. You know, I'm talking to my friends. We're sending each other memes, that sort of thing. And then I went through a period when I was doing some organizing work, like right. with Black Lives Matters and stuff like that. And I was on Twitter and I got doxxed. Why? Because the world is full of haters. I don't know. (laughs) But I got doxxed and it was really insane. And I kind of like wanted at that time, like I wanted to like really limit like my digital footprint in Mm -hmm. a way. Like I didn't want to be so accessible because they like put all my business out in the street. And so... I kind of backed away from it. And so me getting back into Instagram and I use it really professionally now. It's like, you know, I connect with artists. I'm talking to people in my DMs. And it's not like, you know, something like where I'm sliding into DMs and like (laughs) shooting my shot because I am not. But um, (laughs) I'm just like connecting with artists and like we're having larger conversations. And like I said to myself that 2019 was going to be the year in which I focused more on my own curatorial practice. And so um, a lot of that is coming through like things I'm seeing online and like notes I'm making to myself. And I'm just like, oh, I want to look at this artist's work. I'm following certain hashtags. I'm just like, you know, like it's a great tool. Like I'm connecting with people in a way that I haven't in, you know, since beginning my practice. And it's been great. Well, and and I bring it up because one of your uh, last posts was about being taken advantage of in some ways, right? If, you know, if, if you want me to, if you want me to work, <laughs> you, you should be compensated fairly, right? And right. that is something that, you know, has always been a bone of contention for me. Like, and anyone who has worked in the arts know, like the amount of unpaid internships are ridiculous. Like institutions that you know have the funding to pay people and them refusing to pay people because they think like, oh, it's a privilege that we even accepted you to work here. All right. But like, and I understand that thought, but also that's gross. There's some value to the connection of being there, Mm -hmm. but it's not... It's, it's not, not like enough. a golden ticket right. to the Wonka factory. Yeah. It's not enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so it's kind of like when you, and, and this is something that I see all the time when I, cause you know, we work with creative people. Mm-hmm. And so like, and I'm even talking to my brother about it. He's like, you know, people will ask for commissions and then they will make so many requests, not realizing how much work went into this and how much work will go into doing those edits and just like wanting to be trusted and wanting like people to accept my artistic vision for what it is. And I kind of feel the same way. It's like, 
I get people wanting to collaborate all the time. People asking me if I'm interested in doing programming. People asking me if I want to consult, if I want to curate. I'm like, you don't have any plan for me. Not really. You don't think like you you're interested in my work and you think what I what I do matters, but you don't think it matters enough for you to pay me. Yeah, they don't see it as an actual skill or mm-hmm. or uh, uh, like like creativity and talent is is somehow not labor. Right, right, right. And for a lot of people, there is an, a, an innate sense of like being a creative and like having that talent. And I, but like what I feel like my role is, is supporting those people who have that innate talent, you know, that's a gift. But also I've, I see it all the time. I see it with my brother. I see it with, you know, people that I know. People who do have that gift for, for art, who do have that artistic talent, do not have that gift for business. Yeah. <laughs> and so because they don't, like, they don't get paid what they deserve. Yeah. I, and it's like, you feel like my art is worth something, but you don't want to pay me. That's a problem. Mm-hmm. That's and it's an ongoing problem because nobody's labor is free. Part of my uh, job at a community college where I teach at is um, is, is to direct jobs to students mm-hmm. where, where people call in. And of course, they're looking for something a little lower rate, a little more, you know, and, and, and that's fine. I mean, there is some value to the experience, some mm-hmm. value to building up your portfolio as mm-hmm. long as you are getting paid. But, mm-hmm. but then there are the, the people who put in, you know... I have, uh, you know, my daughter's party and maybe a student would like the, you know, would like that for their portfolio. And it's like, so what you're saying you're not paying? I just want to know because I, then I don't, I don't offer those jobs at all. Right. Yeah. It's and like, I'm no, like, sorry, no. And that was something that when I was working at White Box, that was an issue that I had is mm-hmm. that, you know, I would always tell my interns, I'm like, any copy you wrote while you were here, any design work you did, you need to keep that and you need to put that in your portfolio. And I need, I want you to understand that I'm supporting you in doing this and I want Mm -hmm. you to do this and I will look over your portfolio. We can talk about that because if I had my way, I'd pay you. Yeah. Like, you know, because I feel like what you do here is valuable and I want to pay you for that. And even like beyond that, I want to pay you for your time because no one's time should be free. Right. And and there's there's also value in the cooperative idea. Like if you're a part of the gallery and you work at the gallery and you get to show your work and everything else, that makes sense. There's so many ways we can do this. So it's like I'm just kind of like fed up with then like I see it all the time. And it's one of the reasons why like I have like wanted like so long to leave institutional work like and and I could go off (laughs) about institutional work and how it is truly a flawed like system Mm -hmm. and that like I see like you know I was talking to a friend of mine we were at we were all in Miami at the same time it was kind of crazy like my entire master's program converged on Miami was hilarious but like (laughs) we're talking about like some of like you know people who have aspirations to do curatorial work and I'm like okay so like what are our options do we get a master's, do a cura- do curatorial work for three years as an assistant, right. and then maybe, just maybe, you'll get that promotion to where you're actually doing curation and it's not administration in the curatorial department. Like, you know, and those things matter. And right. I told her, I was like, honestly, you would be better off doing your own curatorial projects and stepping outside of the institution because the institution can sometimes be a trap. Mm -hmm. And so like, that's like a thing to navigate. Like whether you want to waffle away at a museum that doesn't grow at the rate in which you're growing, or do you want to create your own opportunities? And I'm a big advocate for creating your own opportunities. You know, they, um, Oh, I just read this as well. Um, I'm not sure where, sorry. That 
you know, people assume the gig economy, the make your own way economy is a choice. It's not. <laughs> it's not a choice. It's a necessity. It is. Yeah. It is. Because like, if you can't make your way for yourself, like sometimes people don't realize the value in what you do until you do it so well and that you have to make it exclusive. And that's kind of like where I was coming from, like, and prompted my decision to leave institutional work because I was just really unhappy. And I was just like, you know what? I, my ancestors did not cross time and space for me to waffle under the mediocrity of (laughs) this institution. (laughs) And just like how, like, I just felt like I could contribute more. Mm -hmm. And like, you want people to like, recognize what you do and have faith in that and sometimes that means stepping out and not having that support yeah absolutely and you got to be willing to take that risk sometimes because i personally don't want to be anyone's assistant <laughs> yeah well, I would, well why would that be your top aspiration right not like on any level like i'm and i'm not saying that it's wrong but it's like you oh no know. there's i mean i i say that very sarcastically but i've been very happy assisting people like, on yeah. and off throughout my life and, and that's yeah. the thing it's like yeah. a lot of what i do is facilitating mm-hmm. like Sometimes I'm just creating a relationship yeah. between two people, introducing a person to another person. And what happens is a beautiful thing. If something takes place, it's great. But it's like sometimes, and this was something that I was dealing with when I was working in institutional work, is when you are coming into an institution and you're starting off in a low, like, you know, in a low role, you kind of have to convince everyone around you. And I'm the kind of person, I want my work to speak for myself, speak for itself. I want to get by on my own merit. I want to get by on my own skill. Like, I don't want to have subscribe to like the, the nepotism and, mm. you know, the smoozing and hobnobbing. And I know that's a big part of what we do. Right. But it's like, I don't want to always, like, you know, have to rely on that. I want my work to speak for itself. Yeah. Besides then uh, working here uh, at the gallery, what other kind of projects are you doing? And you also mentioned that you teach. Where are you yeah, teaching? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I teach through New York Historical Society and I teach SAT prep. So pretty much I'm working with underdeveloped communities, low-income communities, talking to students about getting them ready for college, letting them know that there are other options out there. Like, And the thing about, like, we talk about college, and it is sometimes a trap because student loans are real. <laughs> and it's a, a reason so why... So real. <laughs> so real. And it's, like, such a reason why people don't finish college because they realize they can't afford it, but also taking the time to let them know that there are options. Mm -hmm. There are options. And a part of that is like, if you want to enter that system is recognizing that, you know, you got to sometimes play by their rules. I personally don't believe that testing is a good indicator of a student's abilities. Testing sucks. Oh yeah. Standardized testing is the worst thing ever. Yeah. But I'm here I am in the system and I'm part of that. And like when I and I tell my students all the time, I'm not teaching you math. I'm not teaching you English. That's not what I'm doing. I'm teaching you to pass this test. I'm teaching you this test. And I'm teaching you from my own experience. Cause I got a perfect score on the verbal. And I took it, yeah, it was some years ago. <laughs> <laughs> but like I recognize just the power in that. 
even if you know you know how to take one standardized test, you can take them all. Yeah, there's a there's a technique to there's taking those tests to it, and yes. that's and that's literally what I teach. And yeah. that's like I'm like you come in with the knowledge that you have, and mm-hmm. I can make that work for you. I'm gonna teach you how to take this test. Right. Yeah, that's what we um, you know we were also upset about at the park tests in New Jersey, and you know, my son did really well in those park tests. I don't know what it means. Yeah. I don't even know what that is. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, it's. <laughs> I believe the standardized testing for high schoolers. It was it was a test that they were going to use to determine whether or not you should graduate. They had that when I was going to school. It was called the standards of learning. And And they had regents in New York. Regents. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing. And it's like I'm familiar with regents because a lot of what I teach is if I can teach you to pass the SAT, then I can teach Mm -hmm. you to pass regents. Right. I oftentimes get students who ask me, like, can these, you know, techniques apply to regents? I'm like, and it can apply to a lot of things. Yeah. And it's, but it sucks though, because it's like, okay, I remember I took my standardized testing. I finished all my testing in the 10th grade. So that means I should have graduated in 10th right. grade. If that's how it was going to go, then that's the way it should have been. Like, but you know, the, the system is very flawed and sometimes you can't dismantle a system until you're within it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like being in this system and like teaching these students how to make the system work for them. You know, kind of like my little rebellion, yeah. I guess. <laughs> and like also it's like I recognize like, you know, that them seeing me, mm-hmm. I'm a black woman. Like, you know, I'm and I'm young enough to where I can relate to them. My oldest students are 18. So it's like I'm young enough. We can talk right. about some of these things. And like, I get it. Since like, I feel like that's something, you know, I'm in these communities. And a lot of the time it's people of color who first generation Americans, first of their family to finish high school. Let first alone fully English speaking members. Right. right? Yeah. Right. One of my students hit me like she actually she was so cute. She sent me cookies. Um, her mom sent me cookies because she is an un- she's a DACA student. Got to got into UCLA. Wow. For art. Nice. Oh wow. And she's the first person in her family to ever go to college. And I'm just like, girl, (laughs) I am so proud of you. Like I know what that means. And I'm just like, just just even like being able to say that and like knowing just what that impact is. And you're undocumented. Like that's a big deal. Like I'm so proud of her. And her mom, I remember when her like she graduated her because I went to her graduation because I got really close to that family and just like her mom like hugged me and cried. And I'm just like, honestly, like just even being able to see her graduate and Mm -hmm. know that she's going to college is enough for me because that's what we strive for. We strive for creating opportunities, creating mm-hmm. access, you know, yeah. it all comes back to that. Oh, it's so heartbreaking, you know, because uh, if if they could all get together and fix immigration, our uh, <laughs> our fearful leader could have his wall. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Like, also, like, that's a whole miasma of foolishness mm-hmm. <laughs> because it's like he employs a lot of undocumented of people. of course he does you know like what nerve like you have oh, to wake there's... up with big brass balls oh, to like yeah, just there's... feel like you can invalidate a whole community of people who contribute yeah. to society yeah yeah no, they're more like gold-leafed i think <laughs> <laughs> Well, <laughs> it's all just a mirage. We can dream. <laughs> Honestly, it's like this is like the worst dystopian novel ever come it, to life. It, it really is something. It oh, yeah. is. Um, yeah. It's madness, pure madness. Yeah. And sometimes, it, he, but it's the height. It really is the the height in a way we haven't seen in a while 
of calling out the other. I mean, just demonizing people like you've never like we haven't seen in quite a while. How do we like sometimes I'm like literally like and he's such a like a blamer, you know, such a pointer. Everything. And I'm just like, you have a lot of nerve. (laughs) And also just the fact that he is so good at like also, do you read his tweets? I do. I can't help myself. It's awful. It's so bad. And it's like, you listen to him talk, and I'm just like, oh, like, he's a petulant child. Like, he's a a child with a comb over. There was some, there is some stunted development going on there. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Mm. I'm just like. In my opinion. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not a doctor, but I believe there's a major, there's there's a major stunting in his development. There's something going on, and it's kind of ridiculous because it's just like, like, you ever hear, what does he say? This small loan of a million dollars? Oh, yes. my little, Which turned out to be like uh, almost like half a billion or something, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Even the fact that you feel like you can say that with a right. straight face, like, shut up. But like, who, who doesn't get a million dollars? Who doesn't get a million dollars? From their like, daddy. I'm personally still waiting That's right. on my father's to give me a million dollars because I have plans for that money, namely my, my student loan. My, uh... My dad left me about $10,000 when he died. I blew that all in the first year at Lehigh. <laughs> <laughs> that was gone in a one year of college. <laughs> and honestly, like $10,000 was so much for him. Right. It was such a sacrifice. Right. That's nothing compared to the college experience. You oh, know, yeah. like, yeah, yeah. what can we get with $10,000? Yeah. <laughs> like, when you realize that, like, especially if you're bo- going away to school, mm-hmm. the average college they say for an out-of-state degree is what 30k a semester yeah easily yeah 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 who has that yeah like you know nobody like, that's why that's why the loans are uh like in the billions they yeah. need to forgive us all like I, that's yeah. all i need is some loan forgiveness i feel like they actually forgive my loans and i can <laughs> i can live the life i was always meant to live that's right <laughs> well that's a big deal it is i mean to, just a Think about the debt that students carry when they're supposed to be out starting their lives. Right. It's and, crazy. And then you think about the fact that, you know. I the, carried it. Yeah. Right. The system of unpaid internships. The mm-hmm. system. Oh, of, yeah. And then you're supposed to in, like volunteer. Right. Right. And then they love to say, oh, we want someone with five years of experience. Right. It's an entry level position. And you're only going to get paid $12 an hour. Yeah. Like. Excuse me, but no. <laughs> right. Like, and it's kind of crazy because, like, even at this juncture in my life, everyone I know has multiple jobs. Mm-hmm. Like, when are we not going to be doing that? Mm-hmm. When are we going to, like, enjoy our life and not work ourselves to death? And it's funny. We always say our favorite game is to figure out how our friends afford their lifestyle. But we all know that yeah. we're all working like, <laughs> like crazy people. Oh, yeah. It's all work, work, work. Yeah. Work, work. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I saw on your Instagram also that your mother passed away. Mm-hmm. Yes. How many years ago was that? Yeah. My mom died when I was five years old. Okay. It's been 25 years. Mm-hmm. And... You know, that's like one of the best things about photography is that, you know, when I do look at her pictures, it's like all those things that I feel and all those memories are still alive for me and still well and just like and still like something that I can experience. Yeah. Well, so my mother passed away when I was eight and my memories of my mother are are fairly vague and Mm -hmm. cloudy and the images are the memories they are they are and i think the thing that gives me the most comfort is that like when i look at 
my mom, I see myself. Mm. We look so much alike. Huh. <laughs> and I feel like, and also like people will tell me like, oh, like you sound like your mom. And I'm like, and it's funny because. Well, that, that must be an experience for your father, yeah. right? Yeah. But go ahead. I'm sorry. I cut you off. Yeah, yeah it, it is. So mm-hmm. because that's, I remember him telling me that like he gave me my mom's bracelets and he was like, you look so much like your mom. And it's funny because I always thought that I looked like my father. But as I, I'm like, oh, I really do look like my mom. And my my aunt, she tells me, she's like, you're a lot like your mom. Like, your mom was a very passionate person, and she was definitely her own person. She followed her own compass, and I'm that way, too. And she's like, she wasn't afraid to break away. And, you know. Yeah. I guess I'm, I'm that person as well. <laughs> so were you then just primarily raised by your father? Um, my grandparents. Oh, um, okay. My dad was in and out of the country, you know, oh. so... My grandparents and, and oh, that's how you end up in Virginia, Virginia. right? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah, yeah. Grandparents on your mother's side, grandparents. My mom's side, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. My father's um, parents. My grandmother, she's in and out of the country a lot. Um, my grandfather passed in twenty four thirteen, twenty thirteen. Yes, because mm. I was yeah twenty thirteen. Not that long ago. Um, yeah. yeah so not yeah. that long ago, but it feels. It doesn't actually. It's it, I have my moments with that, you mm-hmm. know. Like sometimes it feels like, because like my my father's gone too, so it's like it's kind of like crazy that I was I buried both of my parents before I was thirty, you know. And that's like something that I think about a lot. I'm just like, oh okay, they're both gone. Like, yeah. And so like and so you you have your grandmother. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have my and like my mother's family is so big, and that's one thing I cannot say. Like my family, we take family very seriously. Like. Every other year, we have a family reunion in a different location, yeah. and we just kind of, we try to strengthen those bonds of family, and like, I have, like, I'm the youngest of five total. Yeah, so like, my mom, my- Same mother, yeah. No, no, no. I have, oh, I'm sorry. I, I have okay. three, and that's the thing, we don't consider ourselves half-siblings, so it's kind of like, it's weird, like, when I like, break down the tree- But yeah, like my mom had a child before her and my dad had me and my brother. And my dad had two children before her, from him and my mother got together. So there's five of us. But like, we're not hung up on the half sibling thing. Yeah, that's not something. You're all in touch with each other? Oh, absolutely. Like I literally just spoke to my sister the other day. All of my siblings, actually. We all are on the gram. <laughs> We're all on Instagram. Like, you're all texting. Like, yeah. yeah, like, you know, sometimes I get kicked out the family group chat. <laughs> yeah, you know, so we're, yeah. we're, we're in contact and like, okay, so I have a brother and sister who live here in the city. I have a sister who lives in Jersey. And then my brother lives in Orlando. But mm. he's lived in or- he lives in Florida for forever. He hates cold. Oh, okay. So he can't he can't deal with went it. Went off on his own down there? Or? Um he went to college. He went to Florida oh. AM. So he was living in Tallahassee. Mm-hmm. Um and then he relocated to Orlando and he's been there ever since. Oh. And where in Jersey is your sister? She's in Atlantic City. And Atlantic City's oh, yeah. a dump. Yeah. <laughs> hey. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> But it's a dump. And it's like, it's funny because I'm always telling her, I'm like, you need to come back home. Just like, you know, do me a solid. Just come back, you know? I uh, I just juried a show uh, for the Noise Arts Garage in Atlantic City. Oh, 
And uh, how was it? It was great, and it was beautiful. <laughs> and it wasn't a dump. <laughs> you know what? Though I have a history with Atlantic City, what so I'm saying this like well, uh, from, clearly there are some very rundown parts of right. Atlantic City. Yes, and you know, like, yeah. but back in the day. My grandparents owned a beach house in Atlantic City because oh, that wow. was a thing that people did. Like, yeah. you had a little money, like you were like upwardly mobile people of color. They would invest in beach houses, and so like that was something that we did. And spending like you know summers on the coast and stuff like that. And then like when my mother passed, that beach house reverted to us, and we wound up selling it. Um, but was it actually in Atlantic City? Was it in Ocean City or is it, it was in, it was in wow. Atlantic City, and wow. it was like on the water like it was it was crazy yeah um like walking distance from the boardwalk so mm. like i would i remember like being in atlantic city in the summers and like seeing elephants on the boardwalk because like you know the taj right. and like right. you know going to the boardwalk for popcorn and laffy taffy and like before things went yes. skid row <laughs> <laughs> but you know i have faith in it i do because like that's like a whole like thing like you know and I look back at that fam- that photo album and I'm like, oh, wow. Like, you know, we were in here. Like, that was like a thing that my family did. So it was, it's kind yeah. of awesome. No, I, I have hope for it, too, because, you know, they're they're trying to find other means mm-hmm. of tourism mm-hmm. and 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 uh, ways of generating income that isn't just all casino based. And there are some brand new, you know, if you like casinos, lovely casinos. Uh, on the boardwalk now as well. But uh, Stockton University is investing a lot in Atlantic City and, um, you know, in the arts. And that's where the noise uh, museum comes from. Yeah. And I think that's something that's, like, so, like, necessary. Because I, like, you know, I personally believe, and I feel like you probably believe this too, like, you know, without the arts, civilization will wither and die. Like, seriously. like It is what remains. (laughs) And it's so (laughs) funny. Like, I remember... And also because, like, everyone I knew sent it to me, that article in which Obama was like, yeah, you know, STEM degrees versus art history. And I was like, you had one job, Obama. I know. (laughs) He was not great for education. And and it's weird because it's like his arts initiatives were great. Like, and I'm just kind of like, he was like. I'm kind of confused like, because, you know, art means something to me. Right. And so, like, of course, I want to, like, be a part, like, you know, see an administration that supports that. But mm-hmm. it's not this administration. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I every, mean, everything, every, <laughs> the little good that the Obama administration did for education is uh, getting wiped out. Yes. That's his legacy, though. Yeah. Is wiping out I mean, Obama's we, we legacy. We had Jill Biden and I think was Arnie Duncan. Yeah. Right? I mean, those were good people. Yeah. The, yeah, yeah. I love Joe. He's yeah. coming back. Yeah. Joe yeah. is coming back, you know? Oh, like, I was talking about his wife who... Um, Who's in edu- who's at community college? And yeah, yeah, yeah. She visited my community college. Actually. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. But yes, yeah. No, uh, we're, we're going to see a little bit more Joe. I don't know who should be the front runner of the Democratic Party next time around, but it, I think he'll be good for the race. I think he will. You know, I I, I may have uh, cut you off a little bit. You were talking about your father passing away and both your parents being gone by the time you were thirty. But did. Did you, was he able to see the trajectory of your career? Yeah. And, um, yes and no. Mm. So he passed 2014 and I was finishing up my bachelor's in 2014. And so, no, he didn't really get to see where 
I like he didn't know like it was going to mm-hmm. go this far. But I remember, you know, talking to him about I was just I had just started doing like little like speaking gigs. So it was like I had did a symposium and I remember telling him about it and talking about the work and I was talking of, and he didn't realize how far I was going with this because I'm talking about the Caribbean and I'm talking about the work of Augustino Brunai and we're talking about free people of color and I managed to connect that to Toussaint Louverture and the uprising in Haiti and pretty much Haitian independence which laid the foundation for all slavery revolts and all independence movements both in the Caribbean and here in America Mm. like because that was the first successful one so we all owe Haiti a lot and so like in talking about Toussaint Louverture and that um sacrifice and telling my father about this and he like he knows about that history and so like me and him having that conversation he was like I didn't even think that you could go that far with what you're doing it made a real connection Mm -hmm. and I'm and that's and people are always so surprised when I talk to them about my interests and where I go with art history because I tell people it's all connected and art history is such an interdisciplinary practice that you can go a lot of ways, like go a lot of places and talk about a lot of different things in, in different ways and just like make connections that you wouldn't normally make. And so in me, like talking about this one piece that was up at Brooklyn Museum and winding, like finding myself coming into the discussion of Caribbean independence and independence movements and what that means. And this is something that I find myself always talking about in a way and just post-colonialism and what that means and what what's the role in that and what how do you know you visualize a, a just a country after invasion or after you know independence. And this is something that we're constantly talking about still because colonies still exist. Puerto Rico is a colony. Guam is a colony. These things exist. These are things worth talking about, but people don't want to talk about it. And I'm like, hey, look at what happened to Puerto Rico. Yeah. If it didn't, I mean, it it should have woken people up to the idea that we have a colony. We have, (laughs) I mean, we, in this day and age, that we don't even protect or support or, yeah. Exactly. And so, like. Can't vote for president. Yeah. Can't vote yet. And then also we talk about how colonies work and what are the roles of a colony. And I had this discussion with someone recently about whether certain countries set their colonies up better for independence or not. And I was talking about Jamaica and how so many of Jamaica's resources are controlled by outside countries. Like the water, I think, is Swiss and the electricity might be some other country. Like, mm. an, And I'm like, we're talking about this and we're just kind of like, he said to me, do you think that this might have been something that would have gone differently if Britain had set Jamaica up better for independence. And I'm like, honestly, that's a larger conversation. And that's yeah. more about what is a country, what is the colonizer getting from the colonized? Like, look at America, which started as a colony. Those natural resources found here in America were being sent back to Britain. Like, that's how people use a colony. They use a colony to, you know, 
invigorate their economy, to bring, you know, new things to their economy. Also, let's talk about, you know, slavery. Right. It's not just a natural resource. It's (laughs) human resource. Right. Like, you know, so we're having like larger discussions and this is important. This is important to the work. You know, there are people out here who are talking about their experience as, you know, post-colonial third world you know countries and just like trying to navigate what it means to have a national identity when your identity is so tied up in economic power how does jamaica advocate for itself how does this um brazil break away with that horrible history you know it's bigger it's so much bigger and it's like a lot of that like those discussions are coming from Artists are having no discussions. And, and it's not like these countries gained independence and it, and it, it was all over. Uh, because then multinational corporations found another way mm-hmm. to get at the resources mm-hmm. with very little in return uh, by uh, destabilizing governments. governments. And, right, to maintain power. Haiti. Right. Haiti's Dominican one of, Republic. Haiti is just the saddest of the stories, uh, yeah. And also, they, they started that early. Because right after the independence... The indemnity. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just like, yeah. how, how do you So make, now you have to pay. Now right? you have to pay. Like, you right. literally have to pay. They made that country pay. Mm-hmm. And then just like the, like, you know, destabilizing countries, setting up dictators, Papa Doc and Baby Doc in Haiti. The Shah of Iran being, right. <laughs> right. Yeah. You look at the Congo. Mm-hmm. They assassinated Patrice Lumumba. Who did they put into power? What did he do to that country? You know, like, it's, it's so, such a big, you know, conversation. What was going on in the Congo? What was that, that main export? Diamonds and rubber. They mm-hmm. used to chop people's hands off if they didn't bring in what they deserved, like right. what, what they felt like was that quota. So like, you know, these are like a larger, lar- like Cuba. Mm-hmm. And also, what is that relationship with Cuba and America? Why are, like, you know, Fidel Castro made a choice. And, and that is so, so wrapped. And, and in some ways, I think, and now I'm just uh, maybe uh, getting uh, above my uh, pay grade, but I feel like Cuba, places like Cuba, and, and anything that has the taint of communism involved in Venezuela, socialism, it, it, in many ways, why we do need, I think, younger leaders, younger mm-hmm. politicians who still aren't fighting communism and the Vietnam War in their head in some ways, right? <laughs> no, you're absolutely correct. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely correct. Like, there are, like, rulers who are just waiting to divert back to cold war tactics mm-hmm. and i'm like this is not the place like the world has changed right and like if you don't change with the world then you are doomed to repeat the same things that have been repeated before oh yeah so um uh you know one of the other things that um came out in that article in new york times about uh, denise morell and, and and studying the manet painting was that um in the art history classes there was a very uh, there was a very small presence of african-american caribbean-american black americans in the class when all the you know you went to art history in several different in different places what was your experience like i with was that? always the only one mm. i was always the only one and it's kind of like and it's it's a weird thing to be because I've never wanted to be the only one, but I realized the power in that. When I started studying art history, I told you how I never saw myself reflected. Right. And so I started looking for myself. Like I started looking for those like, you know, them renditions and just like looking for those artists that would speak to my experience and just speak to like people of color's experience and just and that's 
actually kind of how I wound up at MoMA PS1 is because like I was looking for that contemporary art. I was looking for it. I was just, I wanted to hear someone else. Mm -hmm. I wanted to see someone else, you know, like in the way in which they experienced the world. But I was always the only one. And when it just recently, like I feel like my master's program and I'm at City College of New York in Harlem has gotten more diverse. Yeah, I was going to ask. Do you see something happening? Recently, like within maybe like the last two years, like I was, I remember my advisor telling me that there was another person. I'm like, who? Because I've never met this person. I want to meet that person. I would love to meet that person. And it's kind of like, you know what? It's funny because now it's kind of a thing in which I meet younger people who are interested in the arts all the time. And people refer me to younger people all the time. They're like, oh, you should meet Kayla. Like, and I'm mm. kind of like, there's kind of, it's a weird thing to know that there's a part of you that has to accept that role of being a gatekeeper in a way. Because it's kind of, if you don't see, you're, you don't want to enter into something where you don't see yourself. And so in a way, when I got into the industry, I didn't know anybody else Mm. that came later you know like knowing you know of Lowry Stokes Sims and Thelma Golden and you know Ken Sasha Holloman and knowing these artists like knowing like Barkley Hendricks and Kehinde Wiley Glenn Ligon you know Ming Smith and just like experience those those works because that came later for me because when I was studying when I first started studying everything was very white and very male and the only women I ever saw were naked women yeah of course right so it was like and I remember doing a talk in which I talked about the female nude and I'm like what is this like why is this so ubiquitous and why is this like you know considered such a motif but like where are like the women who are painting women mm-hmm. where are the women who are controlling their own narrative like that's important and, and that seems to be where we are now in photography mm-hmm. the female gaze right seems to uh, seems to be the space where we if if people still want to explore the female nude then that's the part of it that has been missing mm-hmm. right yeah mm-hmm. and I, I remember the first time since we've gotten on the female gaze Laura Mulvey and me like digesting that and really it's speaking to me but something was missing and I couldn't figure out what was missing because the woman part was right the female part was right but she wasn't speaking to me Mm. but you know who was speaking to me was bell hooks when bell hooks talked about the oppositional gaze Uh she wrote that for me I'm a black woman entering into a field consuming imagery in which I am not a thought. And so like we talk about the female gaze and we talk about women and it was, it was talking about cinema, but like, you know, sitting in the movie theater and like entering the diegesis and trying to being able as a woman, being able to put yourself in another person's shoes and experience life or like experience a story from that point of view and talking about how she didn't feel like men could do that. But it was like, I would sit into these movies. I would sit and watch these movies and stuff and be like, I can relate to this woman's story. But if she was, if it was me, would she be able to relate to me? Mm. Who's to say? And so I remember devouring the oppositional gaze and feeling seen like, okay, because this was actually written for me. And then we wound, and I wound up going down a rabbit hole of 
black representation and like artists and creatives who were making things for the black female gaze and like we get into Julie Dash like and I remember giving like a presentation in class and I'm talking about Julie Dash and I'm talking about I even brought it real contemporary and I got on Beyonce's Lemonade and I'm like hey like she did this for a certain demographic of people and it's great that so many people relate to it and mm-hmm. and see themselves in that but like also it's like you know how powerful it is to like look at something and know that was made for for me you know like mm-hmm. because i feel like everybody deserves that you know yeah well we're in a, a cultural moment you know with black panther with get out with right where where th- that idea of you know we're gonna we're gonna be ourselves and make this for for our sort of sort of understanding of the world and the way we relate to people, but also it's going to be good and, and, right, and everyone right. can really enjoy it. Right. And like, even like just thinking about the way in which cinema has changed. I don't, did you ever, uh, over the summer, I watched this show, Terrence Nash. Mm-mm. It was something of blackness. Um, I can't recall the title of it right now that I want to talk about it, but I think it came on HBO and I remember that first episode being so difficult to watch and so difficult to digest. And I was just like, it's not difficult because I can't relate to the imagery or I can't relate to what's being said. It's difficult because I can relate to it. Right. And that it means something to me. And it's supposed to be painful. It's supposed to, like, raise stakes. Mm -hmm. And so... I'm supposed to like feel like this alienation. I remember, you know, what was it, this year? Was it this year? Charles Burnett became one of the films that was protected. Oh. Was it A Killing of Sacred Sheep? No, 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 that's not the name of it. Um, okay. But, um, yeah. yeah, and just like, I remember seeing that film and like recognizing the powerful way in which the story was being told, but also recognizing that this could be any movie. It could be anything. And I had to ask myself, why did it matter so much? Did it matter? Because it was a narrative that may not always be discussed. Or did it matter because who wrote it? Did it matter because what was, who saw it or who was in it? Like, why is this important? And sometimes that unpacking is enough, Mm -hmm. you know, is enough for me. It's enough for the culture. Because, like, I'm going to see myself regardless, you know. I'm going to see it. I'm going to see myself like when I turn on the TV and I don't watch a lot of TV, but if I turn on the TV or I listen to music, I'm going to hear myself. I'm going to see myself like I recognize like those references because I'm supposed to recognize those references. But there's kind of a power in it's a it's a gift and a curse. It's a gift that, you know, I can hear things or see things and recognize that for what it is. And it be so prolific that it is everywhere but it's also a curse and that there is it's because it is everywhere there's a disconnect Mm. I remember having a class and talking in class about the works of Gordon Park Mm. and I'm like I love Gordon Park's work I love his works I was like but you know who else's works I love James Vanderzee so how is it that you know we can talk about Gordon Park and you know James Vanderzee died broke and practically unknown and so much of that imagery of the harlem renaissance and just right. like and even beyond well, the, the way we Renaissance. think of harlem is james van der Zee's images exactly. yeah I and know. it's like yeah. i grew up in harlem that mm-hmm. that matters to me it's important yeah. to me and it's like like what gordon parks was to chicago mm-hmm. chicago 
James Vandersee goes to Harlem and it's like, that's an era. Like, that's something that's important. Like, you know, that's something worth exploring. But how do we get there? Like, how is it that I can recognize that? And I want other people to recognize it, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So it's like, you know, I can listen to music and I hear Biggie all the time. I hear his references. I know what that <laughs> means. Like, but do these do kids know what that means? Like, well, th- there's always the generation that's separated from the actual references who just they have a new context. They, they do in a different way. Yeah. They do, but in the, but the only drawback of that is is that, and I see that in artwork all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, the only drawback of having a new context is not realizing that your new context comes from my context. Well, like, you know, there, you have a responsibility to history. You that, do, <laughs> right? It's a, it's a debt. Once you're an adult, you have a responsibility to learn what you've uh, what you've been taking for granted, right? <laughs> and I was, and you know, when you were here for the talk with Yoav, and right. I asked Yoav, do you go back and do you check? Like, do you look? at what you've done. Oh, like, do right, the, you... the, old, the towns. And yeah, that he's, like... So, so Yoa Friedlands have been photographing these old coal towns in Pennsylvania, right? Mm-hmm. And so, like, how has these things changed? How has your document... How have you documenting these towns... Has that impacted it? Like, what is the conversation now that you've contributed to this narrative? And having that responsibility is like, sometimes, do I want to rehash it? Do I want to continue to have those conversations? No. Mm-hmm. Has has the culture shifted? Is it beyond it? Sometimes yes, and sometimes to the point of where you have to wait. It's it's a conundrum sometimes because like culture moves very fast, but also it moves equally slow. Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, we're you're only talking about a separation. So that very fast means you're maybe in 15 years things change dramatically, but it's only 15 it's years only away. 15 years, I mean, right. it's so it's it's learnable. It's right. You're not so far separated from it, right? Right, exactly. But and so it's like sometimes you're not far separated from something, and you're it's too close mm-hmm. to be considered history. And that's why you see, like, references. Like, you know, like, when you study art history, where do they take you? We're always going to go through the Renaissance. We're going to talk Greco-Roman. We're going to see a million annunciations. (laughs) 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 And and a million and one pietas. And it's just going to, like, and you're just like. And it's funny. I remember taking, I took three sessions of Italian I took early Renaissance. I, I, took, I like early Renaissance. I, yeah. Okay. My yeah. thing about early Renaissance mm-hmm. is just how off the mark they were with human uh-huh. proportions. Right. I love a Renaissance baby yeah. because you never know. Is it, it going to be a baguette with a right. head? That's right. Is it going to be a monster baby? Like, is it just going to be a little man that just man proportions yes. just little? Man child. Right. <laughs> right. Like, and you think it's a baby. Like, you never know you're going to go. I, if you think that's great. Just look at some medieval tapestries, <laughs> then you will really see some weirdness oh, yes. going on. But like, that's so far away that it's more tangible yeah. than um, something 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. Like, someone will be more likely to reference a Renaissance work than maybe a Kehande Wiley, mm-hmm. even though Kehande Wiley is referencing those, those works, works. Right. Right, right? And so it's kind of like, you know, you have to wonder, like sometimes you just have to wait. Mm-hmm. I recognize that, you know, 
this might not be the time to discuss Afro surrealism. It totally is. <laughs> it really is. Like, you know, but I'm I'm up for it. I want to hear about it. <laughs> I mean, yeah. like, but like just like you know how Afrofuturism became a thing, but it was always a thing. Like, you know, like that conversation was happening. Like Mark Derry was talking about it. Speculative fiction was already being written. You know, like those things were happening. Octavia Butler already existed. She had lived and died. And that's Afrofuturism. Mm. So <laughs> way before, you know, Wangichi Mutu and artists like that. Like, so it's like, those references always existed, but what did it take to make it rise up? Yeah. And so that's something I think about when I when I look at photography, when I look at culture, like, you know, and just the role of photography as essentially a living archive. That documentary is so important, but also it should be more. I don't ever want to look at photography and look at it as a place to hold my memories or a place to record, you know, my life. I want it to be so much more because photography already is so much more, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, you know, it, it can't help but to become images where we do remember things by, especially the you know, Vietnam War mm -hmm. photography, of mm -hmm. course, and, and like we mentioned, James Van Der Zee and all. Mm -hmm. But but no, not not for the, you know, the, the contemporary, the living. That's not that's not that's not the place for it now. Maybe it will be. But, you know, now we need to talk about it in, in other ways in different ways where context is changing. Right. right? Yeah. And the change, the shifting of context is kind of, I think at this point, going, working in tandem with the shift in consciousness. Mm. And that, you know, just that level of awareness now. And I feel like, it kind of, you, you touched on this earlier. We talked about like the pure anarchy that can happen when we get into identity politics. But, you know, the level of awareness, then it does become your responsibility to go back mm -hmm. and discuss things and fact yeah. check and get the broad spectrum that yeah. you that's work. <laughs> that's right. It is work. Yeah, yeah. But, we are, but why are we in this business? Yeah. Right. Because right. we like to work. Yeah. <laughs> and don't get paid. No. <laughs> but uh, I want to... I want to uh, uh, pay some respect to the fact that we're at the Carrie Abel Gallery and, and really be thankful that we were able to record here. Yes. So uh, this, will, this will probably air in about two weeks. What might be uh, going on here well, in, uh, in the month um, of January? Well, we the month of January is actually a really exciting month for Carrie Abel because we are going to the LA Art Show. Oh, wow. So we in this month, December, we were at Basel. Mm -hmm. So we did a showing at Pulse, and we took three of our artists with us. Um, Carrie's work, the work of Karen Fitzgerald, and the work of Sarah Brooke. And for Ellie Art Show, which is the end of January, we're doing works on paper. So we're bringing your ass photography. We're bringing, oh, nice. we're bringing a lot of, it's, it's quite a few. Um, so that's going to be exciting. Um, if you have any West Coast listeners. <laughs> oh, we do. <laughs> um, please, like, follow us on Instagram at Carrie Abel Gallery to stay up to date on all things Carrie Abel. <laughs> I do the programming here. So please, you know, people can join. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm also on Instagram too. 
you know, so we, we have that show going on. We're not doing any programming for this show because we are in the, oh, in you're, the you're process. Oh, you're not here, right. Yeah, of getting ready for L.A., mm-hmm. but fingers crossed. <laughs> there may be a program that we're going to do in L.A. with the photographer Amanda Rowan, who we showed here summer um, with a collaboration with Float Magazine, which... Oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah. so that was really... That was actually my first program that I did, and it went so well. It was exciting just nice. to sit with Amanda and talk about her practice and her amazing works like her works are stunning and I'm so excited to like go and like represent her works and just represent all the artists here because one thing about this gallery is that we although we are small we really try to foster that relationship with the artists that we represent Mm-hmm. And for us, whether it's programming or whether it's, you know, like we just really want to create that access. And to me, it's always like whether whenever I'm given an opportunity to represent an artist, I treat it as an honor mm-hmm. because that's someone's life. That's someone's work. They put their heart and soul into that. And I treat that. And they trust you. <laughs> and they, it, You have to trust a person to yeah. like send them out into the world and represent and have them represent you. Mm-hmm. So, yes, that's a relationship that I definitely take very serious. <laughs> nice. Well, thank you very much. Thank for, you. For this conversation. And uh, <laughs> how did it feel to be on the other side of the uh, microphone? Um, <laughs> this is the first time I've ever done anything like this. Oh, like, great. It's Yay. so weird because I know when I hear it, I'm going to be like, oh, my God, I sound gross recorded. Because <laughs> Carrie records the events here. And right. it's always so funny to, like, hear myself. Oh, yeah. Um, and just see myself like, ew. <laughs> It takes, it, it takes a while to get used to hearing your voice. To, Absolutely. Right? Yeah. All right. Well, thanks again. Thank you so much. All right. Bye, everyone. Bye.